This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our podcast session with Dr. Michael McDougall and Dr. Mac Ross, where we talk about the Olympics and human rights. And so in the first part of our conversation, we started off a little bit with skateboarding and discussed how the different meanings of sport are being navigated and managed when new sports are introduced in the Olympic arenas and what it tells about Olympics more broadly. But so now in the second part, we are getting kind of at the heart of the work that Mike and Mac are currently doing together, which is focusing on these human rights issues and especially the relocation of the local people that often takes place when when the Olympics come to the host cities. So welcome back to the podcast, Mac and Mike. Thank you. Thanks. And let's crack on to that then. So we started talking about the so-called dark side of the Olympics a little bit in the the previous part. So when we start looking into Olympics and human rights, what kind of things are we talking about? Who wants to go first? I'll I'll jump in. Um, I think the big one is displacement. Um, that's, That's a recurring issue. Uh, more so than some of the other issues, which are event to event and more specific to to host um, cities and countries. Um, so a lot of people don't even know um, that the Olympics can result in in displace, displacement because it hasn't been highlighted, first of all, by the IOC. Um, and because it hasn't been highlighted by the IOC, because they're very concerned about their image, it hasn't been highlighted really in the mainstream media too much. Um but, I mean, it, it goes back for a while. Um, I mean, obviously, there, there's big examples like Beijing 2008, where over a million people were displaced. Um, but there were, there were other examples before that that I think because the evidence came out later, they kind of got swept away. So the Seoul 1988 games uh, are generally celebrated by the IOC and by much of, I guess, what I would call the West. Um, as an Olympic Games that somehow brought democracy to South Korea. Uh, But it also brought massive displacement. I would argue it didn't bring democracy to South Korea, that that was something that was coming for a very long time, and that uh, student activists on the ground, many of whom lost their lives resisting um, the South Korean regime, were the ones who brought about democracy, not the IOC. Um, In reality, the IOC passed over the Olympics to a, basically a dictatorship, um, which 
swept the streets clean of anybody they deemed to be undesirable, put them in camps um, where many of them died, many of them were abused. That included children. It included um, many individuals um, with mental health issues, um, unhoused people. So that that's a big one that just kind of came out a few years ago. Um, it never really got any traction um, compared to, to other Olympic stories. Um, but now it's a recurring problem where every Olympics displaces people. Um, but I can tell you from my own experience from teaching a course on Olympic issues um, at a school that has quite a, quite a few people from British Columbia, it's not really um, well known that, you know, the Vancouver 2010 Olympics displaced a lot of people um, or that there was, um, you know, legislation passed to make it easier for police to displace people, uh, particularly unhoused people, and move them out of the view of Olympic visitors. Uh, the IOC does a very good job um, in coordination with national Olympic committees and host cities of making sure those don't become big stories. Um, I was actually, yeah, I, I've talked to, to professors around campus from other departments and um, although they do have a critical view of the Olympics, a lot of these uh, host by host issues get lost, um, I guess, uh, partially through what, you know, Jules Boykoff calls it celebration capitalism, um, as opposed um, to disaster capitalism, I think it was called, um, that Naomi Klein talked about. Um, so basically the idea is, you can get a lot done when everybody's distracted by the Olympic Games um, in terms of gentrification, uh, urban renewal, so they call it, um, and things like that. Um, without really getting the consent of anybody, um, you can just do it because everybody's so caught up in the Olympics, so worried about the Olympics being successful, about the Olympics not costing uh, a huge amount of money and leaving the city with a massive debt. Uh, that they're far more flexible um, when it comes to accepting what local governments um, and hosts would call um, necessities for the Olympic Games. But, of course, the Olympic Games aren't a necessity. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they don't have to happen. Um, but people's, people and governments and, and locals, they feel like one, once you get to that point where you're about a year out, it's the point of no return, you're... You're going to host this thing no matter what, and, and it's got to happen. And all of a sudden, it's like people are willing to look the other way on a whole range of issues. Um, so that's a big one, um, the displacement of people. Um, another one that re I mean happens all the time is uh, the su suppression of freedoms of speech, uh, freedoms of um, expression, uh, that happened in Vancouver 2010, too, where people uh, and businesses weren't allowed to have anti-Olympic signs and things like that. Um, it happened in Beijing 2008, where they said there would be a small zone permitted, uh, or, or sorry, a small zone that would allow protesters um, to say what they wanted to say, and then ultimately that didn't really happen, and some of the people who... Uh, applied for permits to be in that zone, which is kind of a strange idea to begin with, were ultimately arrested for what the government claimed was sedition. Um, 
so ultimately that that issue in, in Beijing 2008 was completely foreseeable based on the human rights record of um, you know the, the Communist um, Party of China or the Chinese Communist Party sorry um, and they were warned by the IOC was warned by um, Human Rights Watch they were warned by Amnesty International by groups on the ground in China uh, by groups um, of expats um, that 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 would happen and that there would be no freedom of speech related to these Olympics and if that's the case, um, I mean, how can you justify hosting these games? Yeah, a lot of things already mentioned. Uh, do you, Michael, do you want to <laughs> jump in and pick up on some of these things or extend it a bit? Sorry, Mike, I kind of hogged a bunch of stuff. No, I was, I was, I was, I was listening like in, intently, Mark. Um, you know, so one of the things I was thinking about, I guess, as Mark was speaking, was that. What you, I, I think you really have is you have impression management on a, a massive scale, right? Um, with the, the eyes of the global media on a city, um, they're up to all kinds of stuff to manage impressions of international audiences, of visitors who come to these places, and most often to present their cities as uh, somehow renewed, uh, beautified, or as an international destination. Um, and, and, and I think that's just, you know, it's probably solidified by the, the narratives that the IOC sort of push as well. Um, so if we take it back to uh, displacement and evictions across successive Olympics, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to sweep like Seoul or Beijing, uh, some of those really obvious shadows under the rug. Um, but there's there's other Olympics where where this has gone on too because it's this is really the legacy of displacement, which happens across uh, successive Olympics. It's a disturbing trend that continuously demonstrates a disregard uh, and really trampling of individuals' right to adequate housing. Uh, patterns of forced eviction, of escalating housing costs that reduce affordable housing, and always seem to benefit uh, an already. Um, Elite, you know, a city and city and uh, business and political elite, or a rising middle class at the expense of a working class, and people are like even in second wave displacement, priced out of their local communities. Um, now you don't really see a lot of that because it happens before people get there. So what you see is like the shiny, sanitized, spectacular impressions that have been carefully cultivated and sometimes done very quickly at the expense of people uh, using what is often, you know, absolutely brutal, non-participative policies to make it happen. Um, so as I say, it's, it's hard to sweep someone's like Beijing or Seoul or, you know, even Rio de Janeiro, I think there was almost, you know, 80,000 people uh, forced out their homes to make um, way for the Rio games. But that doesn't mean that some of the ones that we think might be comparatively good necessarily did well. You know, we could look at, um, you could look at uh, Barcelona and Athens, who really targeted uh, a Romani population, uh, particularly as they were building infrastructure for the Olympics. You could look at London, um, which had promised a legacy for the East End of London, and then absolutely um, inflated housing costs so that no one who lived in those areas could really 
in any sort of equitable way uh, inhabit those same spaces. So there's some Olympics, and maybe Matt can sort of follow on from this a little bit, that, that we sometimes think might get a bit of a pass. But when you, you look a little bit closer, um, certainly not on the same scale as Beijing or Seoul or Rio, uh, but still very, very damaging to local people and communities nonetheless. Um, do you want to pick up on that a little bit, Mac? Yeah, sure. I mean, the one that jumps to mind for me all the time is the 2000 Sydney Olympics because mm. they are almost universally revered as one of the best Olympics ever because there were so many reported um, negative, um, I guess, uh, impacts um, on the ground anyway that, that came out in the media. But there's a lot of good reasons for that. First of all, most of the displacement that occurred uh, was gentrification. Um, it wasn't, you know, knocking down houses and dragging people out, um, like in Seoul or, or, or similar circumstances. It was more more nuanced um, in that, the you know, the prices went up. Um, places were redeveloped uh, for visitors to stay in, things like that. So people were still impacted and the working class was disproportionately impacted but it never really came out during the event and when things come out after the event um, it's often too late uh, but there's a lot that went into uh, Seoul um, for or not Seoul sorry um, I'm all over the place Sydney and the Sydney 2000 games that kind of primed it um, for that kind of response for a response of well it was the best games ever and, and we did a great job um, there was a lot of, so when we talk about uh, hegemony um, and institutions of indoctrination is what, um, you know, Gramsci and Raymond Williams would say, um, there was a lot going on. So for the first time ever, the, um, the hosting committee actually had media partners with, in the newspapers. So two different uh, newspaper conglomerates were signed up to be official newspapers of the Olympics. And obviously that poses a lot of questions about are they going to actually report uh, upon everything they see or are they going to use this as an opportunity to sell papers and really focus on, oh, gee, the, the Olympics are fantastic. And to, to some of their credit, some of the newspapers did provide some balanced reporting, uh, particularly the Sydney Herald, I think. Um, but then there was other things like um, the memory of the Melbourne Games in 1956 was constantly brought up um, and how great that was and how it took Melbourne from being um, sort of a provincial city to being a world city and all these things that are really kind of hard to quantify and prove in any serious way. Um, but, you know, the opinion was that, at least in Australia, that it had been a good thing for Melbourne. So that was rolled out uh, over and over again in the press. Um, but then there's also the Olympic education effort, where um, the National Olympic Committees of various countries actually provide, um, you know, education on Olympic ideals and Olympism and, you know, the ideals of internationalism um, through the, uh, primarily through, I think, the elementary school system, uh, which was very much the, uh, or sorry, elementary school system, junior high school system, I think, more so in Australia. I'd have to double check. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's in the public school system. Uh, and then by the time the games roll around, you have a whole bunch of kids who have heard tons of positive things about the Olympics who are now graduating um, from the public school system um, 
and, and entering, you know, society as adults, and they're ready to consume. Um, so there was a lot going on to lay the groundwork uh, to, to view this, uh, to have a popular view of the Sydney 2000 Olympics as the best Olympics ever, as a good thing, as, as something great for Sydney. Uh, but there, I mean, there's a surveillance legacy uh, left over, some of the surveillance apparatus that was used. Uh, for Sydney um, was continued, uh, which is obviously not ideal in terms of people's freedoms. Um, there was legislation put in place to curtail who could be where and when uh, in terms of Olympic venues um, and Olympic parks that was extended beyond the Olympics. Uh, so a lot of things that um, are problematic that kind of got, um, I guess, uh, you know, buried beneath this this rhetoric of it's the best games ever and look how great we did. Um, but even closer to home for me, the 1976 Montreal Olympics, um, we, we often remember them in Canada as the Olympics that cost so much money that the city of Montreal was paying for them for decades afterwards. But a lot of other things happened, um, particularly the displacement of um, vulnerable populations within Montreal. Um, they actually made signs at one point that said, welcome to, you know, the Olympic Victims Hotel um, for the people who lost their homes and were moved. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that if those were middle class people uh, or wealthy people, that um, the city of Montreal would have come with the same force to just move them from their houses. Um, it was because they were in subsidized housing um, and they, they were already marginalized people that it, it seemed like, uh, no one would notice. Um, but of mm -hmm. course, some scholars have noticed, like Sophie Chan and Janice Forsyth wrote an excellent piece about it. Um, and that's still it, but it's still not, you know, it's not the forefront of our memory of yeah. uh, the Montreal Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still it's still the budget that exploded, um, the debt that the people of Montreal took on and things like that. That was a great article as well. You know, I read that one too, Mark. You know, one of the signs was also um, that they constructed the, the people who had been uh, moved. I, I think at this point they'd been shimmied around the city and they were occupying, you know, like they were they were placed in a, a school which was vacant over the summer. Yeah. And one of the other signs that they constructed, which, you know, really struck out to me too, was that we want to be um, lodgers with social dignity. And you know, and, and you, you think of that word dignity and what that sort of means. Um, this is supposed to be a fundamental human right that people are protected against infringements on their, their property. But throughout, you know, you could look at any of these games and behind the numbers and the narratives that are constructed and the nostalgia that we look th back on to remember things from particular Olympics. There's, there's lots of stories like this where people haven't been treated with dignity. Um, you know, in Rio, there's a story of one woman who was at the dentist or the doctor's or something, and she came back and her house had been bulldozed. Well, well that isn't dignity. Um, Atlanta 96 games were really sort of uh, built on the spirit, or supposed to be built on the spirit and humanist principles um, that invoked the city's legacy in America's civil rights movement and promised a games that would be shared in by all citizens. Yet as soon as preparation was underway, this sort of inclusive, compassionate human rights rhetoric was ceded to really elitist housing 
policies and practices, which increased inequality. So, you know, something like 30,000 poor families and individuals were displaced by Olympic-related demolition um, and related increased housing costs. Um, public housing was strategically raised in areas where African-Americans predominantly lived. Um, many people left without adequate compensation because they weren't tracked properly. You know, none of that speaks to any sort of dignity or fundamental human right. And what's, you know, what's sort of left uh, as people are moved on and homeless were bust out of this, like literally bust out of the city to destinations in like Florida and Alabama and things. Again, with a view of just managing um, the impressions that people have of, of the city. And what's left in place is this sort of sanitized, Epcot-esque, you know, landscape, which doesn't ever seem to be built in mind with the with any sort of heed for the previous occupiers of that space. Um so it's just incredible, you know, like like where is the dignity in that? Where is the um where is any sort of attention to that fundamental uh, human right that is supposed to be embedded, you know, it's enshrined in some of the most fundamental documents that we have. It, it doesn't seem to like translate uh, into practice when push comes to shove. And I think now that the Tokyo Olympics have just finished a few weeks ago and you mentioned that many of these news about the displacement of local people like or they didn't make news so people really don't know about those things. And I didn't know about this huge number of people be before I've been reading the work that you are currently producing. But so I mean, in Tokyo, there there was a big awareness that local people didn't really want the games there. And I mean, with with Rio, I think there was more media attention to the problems maybe than some time before. So maybe these conversations are coming up. But I think what is coming up is the discussion about the next Winter Games in Beijing. And I mean, it's the same Mark, you already mentioned that with the Beijing Games in 2008, there were these warnings from the human rights different um, organizations that basically the Games shouldn't go to Beijing. But so now the Games are again going to China and we know these news about serious human rights violations. So do you think anything is going to happen or we just, you know... Things keep going in the same way as it has been going in the past. So what are your thoughts? I think there'll be even more resistance this time around than there was for 2008, uh, in part because there has been such organization um, by the Uyghur community uh, all over the world, um, calling on people to to pay attention and take seriously the impact that the Olympic Games could have on their relatives back home in China. I even even here, uh, we have a very small Uyghur community here in London, Ontario, uh, but they travel all over the place to try to be heard, to just, you know, to, to get a little bit of screen time or get a reporter to listen. Um, they're working incredibly hard to try to bring... Um, the realities of being Uyghur in China uh, to the forefront of the media. And it, it's it's proving very difficult, but um, it's one of those situations where I don't think they're going to take no for an answer. They're not going to be denied. They're going to keep resisting right till the bitter end. 
Um, and one of the things someone told me, one of, one of the folks I spoke to was there's, cause I said, aren't, aren't you worried about, um, you know, uh, retaliation, um, from the Chinese government, uh, at some of these, uh, rallies and things like that, that are going on all over the world. And basically he said, we have nothing left to lose. Um, you know, if, if we if we're scared and we, and we don't do it, um, it's still going to happen. And he said, if, if we stand up at least, at least we're trying, at least we're doing something and, and it's better than the alternative, but it is a desperate situation. And I don't know what more can be done when, you know, all the major human rights organizations are telling the IOC that, um, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. Um, it's also an issue uh, in terms of China's position in the world as a, as a superpower. How do you say no to them um, at this point uh, when they have so much power in our global economic system, um, militarily, martially? It, it's a real it's a real tough situation that the IOC has created. <laughs> Um, because ultimately they're the ones who select the hosts and, and they're the ones who, even after 2008, after, you know, Jacques Rogue was shown to be wrong when he said the Olympics will really shine a light on human rights and, and help improve the human rights situation in the People's Republic of China. Um, they're going right back and it's, you know, not even been two decades. So it's, uh, it, it's demoralizing from, you know, a, a critical activist scholar point of view because it shows that the IOC really doesn't care um, about the host population, about the human rights records of the people that host the Olympic Games. And by people, I mean the government of China, not the people of China, obviously. But I mean, it's kind of par for the course. So like if you go to the IOC's website and you look up uh, what happened at the Mexico City Olympic Games in 1968, they've completely just sanitized it. There's no mention that a whole group of students was shot down by the Mexican authorities um, for protesting the Olympic Games. It's just not there. And one of the problems with that is, um, and this is kind of the, the weird limbo we live in with media today, is that Google lets the IOC post their own press releases as news um, in the Google News Feed. Um, so they're writing their own story, their own news, their own spin, um, and it's getting published to the world, usually a, as one of the first hits that comes up when you search for the Olympic Games. So if they're going to tell a story about the 1968 Olympics or they're going to tell a story about the 2008 uh, Beijing Olympics, they're not going to tell you um, that there were serious human rights consequences to the games being hosted. Uh, they're going to talk to you about how great the games were. In the case of the 1968 Olympics, when uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith protested on the podium, raising uh, their hands for black power, um, somehow the Olympics and the IOC has managed to, you know, embrace that as their own and, and suggest that it's an important moment uh, in Olympic history, leaving out the fact that they resisted that to the bitter end. You know, it's, they were not happy that that happened. Um, they were furious with both American athletes, with Carlos 
uh, and Smith, but somehow they've been able to rewrite history uh, to make themselves seem more favorable and be a platform um, for human rights and civil rights change. Meanwhile, you know, today, uh, they're really, really repressing the ability of athletes to speak up and protest at the Olympic Games. Uh, so it's almost like double speak, like something you would see in 1984. Um, it, it can get to absurd levels at times. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one option would be then for, you mentioned it, yeah, athletes can speak up and some of them are doing that. And then like the National Olympic Committees, mm-hmm. I mean, there was like a TV debate and it was just asked like whether the Finnish Olympic Committee would consider boycotting the Olympics, but like pretty much the kind of their position seems to be that it's too important for athletes that you cannot do that because they have trained for so yeah. long and and so that's kind of that it's unfair to athletes and like that's like a bigger bigger problem that's than exactly you know what it what the olympics is doing to the host uh people yeah That's exactly how the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Canadian Paralympic Committee responded as well uh, when they were they were pushed to make a statement about the 2022 games in Beijing. They said, well, us not going won't fix anything and we don't want to punish the athletes. Only the athletes will suffer if we don't go. And obviously that's not true. (laughs) That's just fundamentally not true. Um, Many people will suffer uh, through the Olympic Games um, in Beijing. Many people are already suffering. So I, I was furious when that statement came out um, because it just seemed to completely miss the point. Um, but the NOCs are in a tough position because they receive funding from the IOC, right? So uh, standing up to the IOC for many of them isn't really a possibility, especially some of the smaller NOCs, um, if they want to continue to be a part of the Olympics. But I guess my argument would be at what point do we just break up with the Olympics entirely and do something different? Um, because this isn't working uh, for so many people. Um, and I have a hard time privileging athletes or believing that athletes should be privileged uh, over anybody else. I mean, why, why should somebody lose their home for a hockey game to happen? Or why should somebody have their freedom of speech restricted so, uh, you know, a boxer uh, can compete for a gold medal. Um, it doesn't it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to me um, on ethical or moral grounds. Um, you know, if, if we're going to accept that the IOC is just a, a corporation and it's functioning as a corporation, um, you should pretty much just... I guess expect it's going to work that way and that it's just going to be capitalism run amok all the time. Money's going to be first and foremost. Um, A lot of what happens on the ground with these host cities is pressured by the IOC um, through their host city contracts and through uh, the Olympic Charter. Um, So they're all in competition to get this event and they have to go really big. They have to do these extravagant things to make sure they get it. And then it's kind of after the fact that they have to try to sort out how they're not going to impact their host population um, by what they've attained, which is the rights to host the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And Mike, maybe it's a good time for you to jump in. Yeah, I mean, mean, so I think Mark is is really covering it quite well. Um, I guess looking at the future, 
you know, I, I just don't really see how it can be different uh, with the current setup. You know, similar to what Mark is saying, it's it, obviously you would hope that would move towards more democratic and equitable solutions where the the primary beneficiaries of the Olympics are the the communities that host them. But how do you even begin to put them at the centre of, of of this sort of massive creation? Um, where host cities are in ironclad contracts, where things have to happen quite quickly and where you have the eyes of the world um, in quite a relatively short space of time becoming trained on a host city, which usually, you know, because the extent of the Olympic events, you know, and the obscurity of some of the facilities that are needed and the infrastructure that has to be built to support that are just nowhere near ready to support. Um so I, I don't know how under current modes of, um, of of capitalism, how that can really be changed where there is a more equitable development um, of a city that, that really benefits uh, the communities. So, so how that happens in practice, um, I, just, I, I just don't really know. I guess at the moment it's just, you know, it's exclusionary, it's... Uh, Promised legacies, which are, you know, really just to do with sweet talk and false promises, that ultimately harms people, drives people out of their communities from services, from jobs, uh, prevents them from speaking freely, um, and to change that, I think is, you know, for any social practice to change, you know, I, I guess there has to be like a shift in critical consciousness, right? You know, structures and new rules and promises to do things differently doesn't really matter if you don't have that that change in critical consciousness. So there's the, the old adage that for social change to be anything, it has to be cultural. So you need sort of real cultural shifts in how Olympics are perceived and how capitalism is done and how it works. Um, and until you sort of get those shifts, it's difficult for me to even think about how anything you can do is little more than like taping band-aids on like a, a really gaping wound um so I, I guess to sum up you know it's i don't really know i don't really know how this ends other than for it to end um which seems very unlikely because the olympics are a machine and they're hugely powerful um but what how else can be, things be done i just I, I just i can't even conceive of that really yeah, I guess one of the discussions that are every now and then held that what if the Olympics were only hosted in that you would just have like something like four cities or, you know, I think it would always go to these places and then you wouldn't have like that you always build all these new facilities in the new place and then the local people suffer and then they are abandoned and, you know, huge money is wasted. Well, well and less, so on, and, you so. know, less and less cities are bidden um, to host. Because they've seen the hangover, they've they've seen the massive bills that they're footed with, um, so that, you know maybe that makes something like that possible in the future. You know, if if cities are just they really don't want to host this, but at the same time, it probably pushes the IOC into decisions where they they, they give an Olympics to Beijing. You know, like who else is competing to host that? So you have repeat cities that have already done quite a bad job. You know, just getting it down the line as if there's sort of no consequences. Um, but you know, for me, there just has to be like a a genuine interest in 
somehow co-creating systems that take into account the sort of inequity that we see so that local and long-term residents, you know, prosper in place as opposed to being pushed out of them. Um, but I, I don't know how that happens. I mean, I guess one of these early steps is just to balance out this Olympic narrative, like we've talked many times, that it's the official narrative is about bringing people together and increasing like understanding and solidarity across cultures and so on. But like, for example, the work you are now doing, loads of people have no idea about these consequences for local people. And so at least this critical awareness that you mentioned, that is at least something. But I guess, Mark, you've spent more time thinking about these things. Like, do you see any, you know, should we just be depressed and, <laughs> you know, go home? Or like, do you see anything that would hint towards a social change, towards something that is better I think if resistance keeps up, um, there will be some small changes in the future. Um, I think from a scholarly point of view, um, so me and me and Michael have a piece coming out in Frontiers um, about about all the things we've been talking about. But I think it's important. Um, we've kind of followed, um, you know, Helen Lenski and Jules Boykoff and people like that in writing for. Um, more public outlets, outlets that people uh, don't have to go through a paywall to get to, or outlets that are widely circulated, um, you know, the Washington Post in the United States, for example. Um, or the other thing, uh, I write for The Conversation, which gets uh, sent around by the Canadian press here in Canada, uh, and so ends up in a lot of different sorts of publications. Um, when you do that, you you make your work more democratic, I think, and more people can can look at it uh, and see it. Uh, whereas if we were just writing um, in, in academic journals, uh, it can become very disheartening uh, when you look at how many people have read your article uh, when, you know, you sign in and you can see the metrics uh, and you wonder, why did I write that at all? Um, I th I'm really excited about what the future holds because so many more academics are writing uh, in the mainstream media um, and and in highly circulated uh, publications, which means more and more people are going to get to see these ideas and hear these ideas um, as opposed to kind of the echo chamber of academia um, where, you know, you can find people who think like you and, and write um, and have a great career and be very happy, but it's not going to change much. And I think too, you know, just so it's really been of benefit to me to meet Mac, you know, just we worked together at Keystone for a while and just to come into contact with a, a sport historian who does critical scholarship. So interdisciplinary scholarship, being exposed to new ideas um, and it has been very beneficial. Um, but also just reflecting what your discipline and educational training can sort of bring to the table. So, you know, I, I know you've got a big followership in sports psychology and there'll be people listening in. And, and maybe some of this sounds like, well, maybe this is sociology's business. But, you know, one, I think we can have interdisciplinary collaborations. But two, also think about what your discipline can bring to the problems. 
So when we talk about displacement um, and people being evicted from their homes, there's a massive psychological consequence of that. You know, like it, it escalates mental health issues. It increases um, depression. It increases risk of suicide. And people have reported that they feel precarious having been evicted for the rest of their lives. You know, so there's there's topics there that that we can all get involved in and explore from our relative bases of education, training and expertise. And there's so much opportunity to jump into this area and try and tell people's stories. You know, so so what happens to the peoples who have been displaced? You know, how like how did it happen to them? What was the effects? What would they like to tell about what happened? Uh, because there's probably not enough of that type of storytelling um, in the academic literature within this particular domain. And I would love to read more about some of that. Um, so lots of opportunities and, um, you know, a lot to be uh, excited about and, and, and to really try and do work that I think is um, not exploitative and is participative and that, uh, you know, really works with people who have been affected by these types of issues so that they get something out of the process too and we're not just extracting knowledge from them, putting it in an academic journal, which typically, as Max says, not many people reads. So so what would we, as much as we're encouraging um, or we would like to encourage athletes and sport teams and whoever goes to host cities to think about what they leave behind, I think scholars and academics also have to think about what they leave behind with those communities too. What do they give back um, in return for people telling them their stories? Um, and, and, and that leaves me, I guess, relatively optimistic as well. Yeah, I think for me there are like two quite big take-home messages in terms of the first one being reaching out to these publications uh, for example the conversation and you have this piece in the washington post that loads of people see that in terms of making our own work meaningful and impactful and and so that it has a possibility to make some kind of difference is to also reach beyond that scholarly community and publishing in those journals that most people can't access and even those who <laughs> can access don't have time to read. So I think that's number one in terms of is our, make, is our work making some kind of difference. And I think the second one I'm taking away from this discussion is that thinking what is the contribution of our discipline. So for example, in sports psychology, which problems do we find worthy of our attention? And like you said, Michael, there's a lot of work that we can contribute from a psychological perspective. And in, I mean, all disciplines can address these problems that you talk about from their own lens and, and bring a valuable contribution. And I think sports psychology has done some work in moving away from that performance discourse to talking about much more broadly about well-being and mental health and those things that are now big. But I think your work is really pushing the boundaries a lot further in terms of thinking of what is that sport doing in the society more broadly and who is benefiting from that and who is not benefiting from that. So I think those are like really important questions, like who is being served 
by the research that we are doing and and how can we change that if we are not happy with with the impact that our field is having absolutely absolutely so just like i mentioned i didn't know a lot about these problems about especially that displacement of people and that has been well you are writing about that and you're showing the numbers and i will link your frontiers paper and and those popular articles as well so people can read and and take a look and yes i think i've taken a lot of your time this has been a great stimulating conversation and it is a friday an afternoon for me and a morning for you. So just enjoy the weekend and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nira. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.